Welcome to Game Changers, a podcast about trailblazing West Australian women and their contribution to the wonderful game of soccer. This collection was produced and developed by the Centre for Stories and the State Library of Western Australia. Together, we are sharing stories that reflect our state's rich heritage, diversity and history. The interviews you're about to hear were recorded on Wajak Noongar Buja, and we pay our respects to their elders, traditional custodians and knowledge keepers who are the first storytellers of this place. In the lead-up to Perth hosting some of the games for one of the world's largest sporting tournaments, the FIFA Women's World Cup Australia and New Zealand 2023, we hear stories from local women who rose up against inequality and stereotypes to champion the game of soccer as far back as the 1970s. We hear from elite athletes, past and present, considered to be the best in the game, both locally and globally. And we hear from the community role models who are courageously making soccer more accessible and equitable for future generations of women, young girls and newcomers of all genders to the game. Sports media journalist Chris Morano sat down and heard why self-belief, sacrifice and strength is what it takes to become champions of soccer. In today's episode, Chris talks to goalkeeper for International Women's Super League Clubs and Australia's national team, the Matildas, Lydia Williams. A proud Noongar woman, Lydia grew up playing in the red dirt of Kalgoorlie, a small town northeast of Perth. She was inducted into the Aboriginal and Islander Sports Hall of Fame and is also a published author of two children's books, Saved and Goal. Enjoy. You grew up in Kalgoorlie in the Golden Outback, which is about 500 kilometres from Perth. Can you tell me about your earliest childhood memories? Oh, gosh. I probably think it was a lot of red dirt, um, definitely. And a lot of like openness and space, um, kind of like a lot of nature and, and not really like built up much outside of the city uh, or the town. Uh, and yeah, just like living at home with family and, you know, then going out in the desert probably every weekend and, um, you know, visiting Aboriginal communities around the West and um, yeah, just living in like a, a place that was a small country town, but then like so much like vast space around it. And at what point did you start kicking a soccer ball? Uh, well, being in a small country town, it was like all weekends were where families got to mingle with each other again with their kids. Um, and that was joining sports. So basically every weekend was like athletics, football, um, AFL, basketball, t-ball, anything you can think of. I wanted to do all sports. So yeah, that's probably like around eight years old, I remember. Um, but I think everyone did it in the, in the whole town. I, I grew up playing um, AFL and going out in the desert and being in WA especially, there wasn't a lot of football. Um, it was mostly AFL. And um, during that time, there was no real teams outside of the men's competition. Um, and football was kind of the most similar to that where you were playing outside and you got to jump and dive and catch a ball and run around and kick and 
I just enjoyed it a lot more because it was, you know, a lot of your friends were playing, a big team, um, you could kick and catch and, and run around and that was probably why I kind of got more um, drawn towards that than, than any other sport. I think because Kalgoorlie was so small, every team was mixed. I don't think I ever was in a specific girls team. Um, I think it was our school team. Our school team had, they had um, for their age group, I think, as many teams as they could in all kind of sporting competitions. So St. Joseph's Primary was my school and we had a mixed team of boys and girls and playing football um, on the weekends and that that was my kind of first one. It wasn't until I moved to Canberra where you had to join a club um, and it was an all-girls team. Okay. So at what age was that? I'm just trying to get a sense of your like playing in community clubs before you started playing um, more competitively. We moved when I was 11, so because it was from WA all the way to Canberra, I didn't know a lot of people at all. So mum was like, let's join you in some sporting teams and ended up being basketball and football. Um, So about 11 years old, I kind of made the jump into like a proper competition and um, a little bit more structure than, you know, paying registration fees and all that kind of stuff. I I was playing for fun until I was about 16 um, when I first made my first camp with the national team. And then I realized like, oh, this is actually like a career. Um, For me, it was still, I was at school. Um, It was very important to my mum that I finished school and um, I made that a, a, a priority in my pathway and then football kind of followed right alongside it. So we had to make both work at the same time. Um, oh yeah, it wasn't until I was a little bit older that I realized that this is actually a career that I could do. I started getting selected in um, state competitions when I was 13 um, all the way to, to 16 years old. And then from there, that was my first national team camp. Um, and then that's when I was like, okay, we're just going up and up here. There's no really kind of turning around. So that's where it really was, you know, I I saw some investment in me with getting a proper goalkeeper coach, um, making sure I I went in the gym and had a, you know, a schedule of what I was doing in the gym. So it was really kind of around 15 to 16 years old that, you know, there was more investment in me. And that's when I kind of knew I had to really pursue it. So through that time, like when you were a 13-year-old playing, like what was the atmosphere like and how did you feel when you were on the pitch? I think it was just fun. I played a lot with like kids at school and um, all my groups of friends, they all played football um, from school and in, um, I guess, our youth group. Um, and then obviously teams, everyone loved football, everyone played football. Um, and just a sense of community was really good and it was just, it was just fun. Um, especially being in Canberra and coming from like a really small town, like Kalgoorlie, it was like, oh, this is huge. <laughs> it was a place massive, 300,000 people. Um, but yeah, it was really fun and uh, yeah, it was still all for, you know, the enjoyment and, um, obviously my parents were all really supportive and, and kind of helped me along the journey, um, you know, stayed late for trainings, um, stayed late for games, volunteered, um, raised money. Um, we didn't realize how expensive, I guess, registration was. And my mum was uh, earning all the income 
and then we had to do a lot of kind of fundraising through um, Aboriginal uh, sporting uh, government grants um, through my dad and trying to get a little bit more help to, to try and fund everything leading up until, you know, I started making national teams. I don't know. You get a sense um, through the stories I've read about you and your mum, like on Football Australia or uh, in the series that you're really quite close. Yeah, I think a lot of it was um, obviously my dad passed away when I was 15 just before I made any national team. Um, so he was really supportive and kind of did all the dirty work of like hanging around at, till 9 p.m. Um, to to be at the north side of Canberra to drive around back down to the south side. And, um, you know, he was really proud because he didn't really have a lot growing up in himself. Um, so, yeah, for me, he was kind of whatever I needed to do to make – it happened, he would do that. Mm. Um, and then obviously mum, you know, working, she had long days and stuff, so he would volunteer to take me to places and make friends with the, you know, other parents and kind of be there for all games, take down the nets, put up the nets. Um, and, you know, he was probably a lot of people's first time in meeting like an Aboriginal person. Um, you know, that that wasn't outside of... Um, you know, I guess in Canberra there probably wasn't a lot at the time playing football either. So a lot of it was, you know, people learning about him and culture as well. Oh, it was my dad. So to me it was embarrassing because it's like, oh, here we go again. We're going to be late. And he's telling another story. Um, but, you know, a lot of my friends, you know, when it's the date of his anniversary of um, when he passed or um, a birthday or something, I post something, they always write something really nice or text me and, remember him from how he made them feel um he went along along to our year six camps um at school so you know a lot of the kids at school actually learned about aboriginal culture um at school which was really cool um and you know they do reflect a little bit on that um with me at times can you share a little bit about you know how that's shaped who you are through these years it certainly sounds like you've always got your dad kind of beside you yeah, I think I took a lot of pride because he was so passionate about Aboriginal people um, and he didn't come from a lot of money. He didn't come from any money. Um, he was a part of the stolen generation in Australia and didn't know his father. Um, so he, what he could have been like, um, he could have had a lot of resentment and um, anger towards people but he chose to be kind-hearted and um caring and giving and I think seeing that in real life of both the racism he faced and then how he chose to respond to that really kind of I guess helped me to have the same kind of mentality to you know you you always remember how someone treated you rather than maybe what they say or did or anything it's you know the actions that they took um, and just seeing that I think really helped, I guess, shape me and, um, you know, there's something that my mum does as well. And I think it's been nice kind of having both, you know, my dad and my younger childhood and then my mum leading into this part, um, of how, you know, I can really see both of them in me and, you know, how both resilient they are in, you know, what they've gone through. Obviously, my dad didn't see me play in the national team. So that's always hard to kind of 
you know, see, you know, one game or anything like that where you want to share that with him. Oh, he would have made like 20 songs and banners and <laughs> he would have requested to be the official, like, I don't even know. He used to play the um, the gum leaf. So he'd get the gum leaf and play it. So he would literally probably ask to make a tune with the gum leaf and have his uncle play the didgeridoo or something like that. Who knows? Had you had conversations about, you know, rising to the Matildas or having that dream? Was that something that the two of you talked about? One of the things that they, quite a few of them recollect is, you know, my dad saying to them that I'll make it. I'll be like Kathy Freeman and represent Australia for Indigenous people. Um, and he really kind of believed that. So he never really said it directly to me, but hearing back from a lot of family friends it is something that I think he really believed in and made sure that he was there doing the best he could um, leading into, you know, achieving that. I think, um, you know, just going even back in the bush not long ago and, you know, saying my dad's name um, and people just responding and being like, oh, like I miss him and, you know, oh, that was, he was a great man and, you know, all this kind of feedback just from, you know, it's been over 20, uh, yeah, nearly 20 years um, of him passing um, and just saying again like just what he provided people um, and I guess this, you know, the younger players coming in the team that's, you know, something that, it is. It can be a really short career or it can be a long career, um, but you never want to look back and regret anything. So I guess, you know, the young ones coming in, I've always wanted to make them feel welcome and, um, you know, take them under the wing and, and kind of show them, you know, this, this, this is professional, this is not professional, do this, be on time here, and, you know, kind of make sure that I guess the, the DNA of Australian football is still there, but also they're taking it and shaping it into what new football is because football is always evolving. So it's, you know, you can't keep it how it was. It always has to change. But if you can kind of keep how people feel um, in a team as like the number one priority, I think it helps for the transition into the next phase go quite smoothly. And how about your mum? What does she think about your career up until this oh, point. You know, she is my biggest supporter, but is also like my best friend as well that I can be really honest to. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm really happy um, that she's really allowed me in all my life to make my own decisions, but will be there to advise me when she thinks I'm doing something wrong or um, if I need help. Is your mom still in Kalgoorlie? No, she's in no. Canberra. Oh, Canberra. Okay, so with your mom in Canberra and you living um, in Europe and traveling around. I'm just curious, like, what does what does home mean to you? Um, home is, I guess, I think home is wherever you feel you're loved and taken care of. Um, so it can be, you know, when we're on the road and with our national team. Um, it can be, you know, here and talking to my mum on the phone um, but I think it's wherever you feel like you have support, um, whether that be in person or online, I think kind of, it's more of a feeling rather than a place. Like joining the Matildas, can you take us through what that first year was like? Cause I think it's been about 18 years now and you're the longest serving Matilda. 
Well, the first camp I ever went to was actually a young Matildas camp. And I remember it was in Perth and um, it was a camp before they went away for the 2004 2004 Youth World Cup. I think that was in Thailand. And I got called into camp in 2004. I must have been 16. Yeah, I was a baby. And, um, and I remember them saying... Uh, you know, you're just too young. This is your first camp. Um, it's nice to see you, but like, and we'd love to take you, but you've only been here once. You don't, you know, it's it's like your first journey into, you know, professional football. We're not going to do that, but we really want to invest in you. And we feel like, you know, in the future, you'll definitely be back here. And I remember I didn't get selected and I was I was okay. I was a little bit hurt, but it's also my first camp. So I was realistic about it. And at that time I was training at the AIS um, with boys, the boys team. Um, and during that time, um, the coach, Tom Samani, he'd have camps um, at the AIS and obviously we'd pass um, and he'd see me train and whatnot. And so I didn't get into the Armatilda's camp. And then a couple, maybe months later, Tom called me and was like, we'd like to invite you into a Matilda's camp. And I was like, wait, what? Tom Samani, he saw a kid just training. So I wasn't even in any, you know, um, youth programs or anything like that. He's just seen me training, um, you know, a couple times during, you know, over some months and saw the improvement. So probably his eye um, for bringing in players. He brought in obviously Sam and Kate and um, M and, you know, quite a few other ones and identified them. So I think he's always been supportive of the national team and um, really kind of made us believe in our ability for the first time. Um, obviously, there's been a way more progression and um, support and different professionalism from that. Um, but it was probably the first time he really made us believe um, in our ability as a nation and as women as well. So, and, you know, he still keeps in touch with us every once in a while. So, um, yeah, he's he's been a real big support of the national team, but also of me as well. So at 16 years old, that's when I got called into my first Matilda's camp and started being a part of that quite regularly. Um, and then from there, obviously, I kind of almost went back to do both Matilda's and Young Matilda's for, it was three years before I was too old. Um, but, yeah. It's pretty surreal going from like, oh, you know, you didn't make it this time and then literally a couple of months later being in the full-blown Matildas and not knowing anyone, not knowing that this was a national competition. I was still playing in state league representation rather than like AIS or ACTAS or anything like that. I didn't know any of these women. Um, I didn't know like where they traveled. I was really kind of um, just rolling through it and not and really taking it one day at a time. I've always been pretty... Uh, open and willing to adapt to different circumstances, I think, from such a young age. I was pretty lucky growing up being an only child um, when my parents traveled and did community and, and missionary work. I had to still be in school, um, but I couldn't stay at home by myself. So I would travel with them and then kind of be put with family friends, um, sometimes for a couple of weeks, sometimes for a few months. And I went to different schools, made different friends. I think I stayed in Sydney um, for four months for a whole term and a half um, and went to school there. 
I think obviously being away from home a lot as I started traveling, obviously got a little bit homesick. Um, but I think just because I've been doing it from such a young age of like traveling around the desert and making new friends, it was quite easy for me to be used to being away from home quite a bit. I think the one thing that was the hardest in growing up in like adolescence was obviously missing a lot of friends' birthdays and, you know, the what they were doing and they all now have like different careers and families and stuff and I'm still doing, you know, what I've been doing. So do you remember your first game, like stepping onto the grass and how that felt? Um, I remember we played a practice game in China, um, which was my first camp or oh, international camp. Um, and it was against a club team. And we lost, I think. Or we won 2-1 maybe. Um, and I got subbed on and I remember like Cheryl Salisbury just being like, just relax, it's your first like big game. Like just relax, take it all in. And they're all really supportive of kind of, you know, this is I guess the first step in what would be a really long career. Um, and I just was kind of like, oh, there's a big crowd here. It was like, I think it was like 15,000 in China. I was like, oh my gosh. Obviously further along in the, the tour, we played China and Japan, even bigger crowds. And I was just like pretty blown away. And my first cap was actually against South Korea, um, which we lost that game. But, um, you know, after the game, everyone was, was giving photos and being like, here's your first cap. This is really cool. Um, like, welcome to the team in 2005. And that was really kind of cool to be a part of that and, you know, being like, oh, wow, it actually happened. Um, so, yeah, it was kind of really surreal into that. And I think that only helped me grow into um, obviously the young Matildas being exposed to like a higher level with the national team um, being a part of that as well. Um, we went to our first World Cup in Russia in 2006. Um, And so, yeah, it's all kind of been like one thing after another, 2005, getting first cap, 2006, going to World Cup and qualifying for that, Um, 2007, Women's World Cup, Um, and slowly starting to get more caps and more games during that time and, um, you know, really solidifying playing and being around the team in 2012. So, yeah, it's a really kind of slow progression, but, um, you know, I was always uh, involved with it um, right from the get-go unless it was like a major injury. But, yeah, it's been kind of surreal and how it's all panned out. Does it feel like the amount of time that has gone by has actually gone by? No. No, it definitely does because I definitely I don't look <laughs> like I did it um, 15 or 16. Um, but I think... Like, I don't really get that much time to look back um, at my career and how long it's been. Um, sometimes there will be, like, little reminders on, you know, Facebook and stuff like that. But um, it's obviously back in the day there wasn't much social media. There wasn't a lot of, like, posting. Um, journalism was done, you know, via, like, a phone call or someone coming out with a pen and paper. Um, so, you know, a lot of the, I guess, memories from back when I first started is more so like paper clippings. I know my grandpa um, in America, anything that had something that I was posted about, he's collected every single thing. Um, 
I think he has three like massive Manila, what is it, Manila folders? Yeah. Manila? Yeah. Okay. Um, And he's like sent them over from America to my mom for whenever I have a chance to read from right from the beginning to um, when he passed away last year. Um, But yeah, he made sure that I had something to kind of look back and be like, that was long. Mm. Um, So I'm grateful for the people that are in my life that can do that. Um, Sometimes I don't have have all the time. Um, So it's nice to kind of know that you know, there's something special to look back on um, once I'm retired. Yeah, I can imagine how proud your grandpa would have been of you. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he, besides mom, I think he was the biggest fan as well. So I'm pretty sure he wrote, wrote to FA one time saying, um, your copies aren't printer friendly. So <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's very sweet. <laughs> When you were when you first joined the Matildas, do you remember like was there anyone particular in the team who really embraced you and like you know you see so much friends, what you know as a young person coming in, what was that support like? I was lucky because I had um, Sally Shepard, um, who was she made her debut not long before me um and so she's only a year older than me so really I kind of the young people really gravitated to themselves um so I was really lucky that you know she was my first kind of friend on the team and took me under her wing and um then all of a sudden the next year Polks came um on the team (laughs) so then all of a sudden there was like three of us that were around the same age and then we had Lauren Colthorpe and um yeah, then we became like a little group of um, girls that were around the same age and the younger ones of the group and still learning, still having a lot of fun and taking it day by day and um, gaining all the experience. From there, obviously, you know, it's the next generations of the the Sams, the Caitlins, the Emily. Um, they all came in and, yeah, then it kind of followed through from that. So, yeah, it's always kind of been really inclusive um, and family-like right from the beginning, especially the young ones that are coming in, they're getting thrown right into the spotlight right away. Um, where us, it was, you know, we were fighting for, you know, equal pay and um, making sure that we had enough money um, to kind of make sure we're not working. So things are, have definitely changed in terms of that aspect, but um, kind of the whole vibe of the team has always been the same. I think there's like a lot less time for people to kind of fit into a team or um, the pressure of the outside for people to perform right away. Um, We were quite lucky. A lot of us started when we were 15 and 16 in the national team, 17. So we kind of got a grace period and especially with not a lot of social media to, you know, have ups and downs and challenge our consistency and kind of develop um, at a longer rate. Um, And also, you know, our performance back then, you know, we weren't um, in the top 10, I don't think. So there was a lot more, less pressure of, you know, making sure we get this result or that result or this person score or that person do this. Um, and I noticed like a lot of the young ones coming through there, if they'd sign at a big club, they're expected to play right away or the expectation to challenge someone who's been there for maybe five years versus them for like however long. So, um 
there's definitely, a, I think, a lot more of the same pressure, but without a lot of grace period. When we look at your like whole journey, which is it 18 years? I was trying to count. Okay, oh so 18 years, which is incredible. But I'm really curious as a goalkeeper, especially, but as a player, like, you know, what do you think it is about you and about your playing that has allowed you to have such a long career? I guess, to be honest, it's probably like a lot of resilience, um, especially in women's sport uh, with everything that happens, not only in football, but um, women's sport worldwide. I think you have to have a little bit more resilience um, and especially as it grows and grows, there's obviously more pressure. Um, you know, I, I always, when my dad was really sick, um, the last thing he kind of said to me was, you know, like, I'm always proud of you and make sure you don't give up and keep doing, you know, what you're doing and like I'm always here with you. So for me it was like I never really even – I went back to school after a week um, off um, and I've never really had the been the person to kind of sit still with a feeling um, or with, you know, any negativity. I've always wanted to progress and be better and kind of always challenge myself to be a better person. So I think that's probably been the one thing that's kind of helped me with being a, a goalkeeper as well. It's a pretty thankless task sometimes. Um but, you know, I've never gone out there looking for that um, on a bigger scale. It's, you know, always making myself proud and my family proud and my teammates proud. And that's kind of, I think, where I've gotten um, more resilience through playing a goalkeeper and being around for such a long time is is kind of really trying to nurture the next generation coming through, but really kind of honouring what um, I really believe in myself and what values I hold as well you know people are allowed to make mistakes and they're allowed to you know be sad and upset and I think as resilience is you know the process and how you move on from that and the lessons you um gain out of that I think sometimes it can either be like I don't want to do that again because it hurt me or it could be I'm going to do that again because I've learned from it um and I know what not to do next time. Yeah, I've always kind of been someone that wants to live life to the fullest and learn and develop. And so I think I've always gone to a challenge rather than run away from it. Uh, I want to talk about the Women's World Cup. Uh, I think we said, is this going to be your fifth or sixth? Yeah, fifth. <laughs> Which is amazing. But to have it on home soil, um, how's that feeling for you in two months that you know, the world's biggest tournament will be played oh, there. Just hearing that we were bidding, it was like, oh, okay, because obviously we had the failed um, event of, you know, the Men's World Cup. So we're like, oh, yeah, this is not, we're not going to win this either. And then obviously it got down to the final us and um, Colombia. Um, and it was like, oh, we might actually do this. And then being there for the announcement, was unreal especially in COVID when all the world stopped and then all of a sudden we got the best news that we could possibly have that we're going to host the Women's World Cup um and it just kind of felt like a little bit of a whirlwind since then like it's um we've had you know the Olympics um we had uh you know Women's Asian Cup 
um, a few more competitions. And so, like, it's kind of felt like it's been put on the back burner a little bit. And then now all of a sudden it's like, oh, it's just around the corner. So, yeah, it's a bit of a, a whirlwind. It's definitely amazing um, being there from all of those starting points. Um, and, yeah, I'm sure I'm going to feel the same way when we kick off um, in Sydney. And with the tournament, you know, it's talked about as, you know, these types of tournaments can create positive change and create social change. What do you think the women's game needs most um, and if you can tell us a bit from a West Australian perspective as well. For me it was my role models were all AFL players um, and even basketballers in Perth um, with the Wildcats. Um, I don't really know anybody except Kathy Freeman um, and that was you know only because that she was like a superstar um, and you know, was an ind- Indigenous woman. Um, so I think the more exposure of uh, the World Cup and females in sports just going to really help grow the game and grow opportunities for women. Um, but obviously, you know, I think WA and um, a lot of in- Aboriginal communities don't have a lot of access unless I, if I didn't move to Canberra, I probably wouldn't have been you know, selected or had the same um, opportunities as, you know, some girls that maybe lived in Sydney or Brisbane. Um, and I think that's the the point is that there's a lot of hidden talent in communities in small places that may not have that exposure or that opportunity to leave or um, fund their sponsorship um, to, to try and play. And I think, you know, the one thing that I'd like to see is that being a lot more accessible um and you know it's not just football it's you know other sports to have a hard time with kind of going out in communities and really helping young players and um potentials have that opportunity and I think that's something that you know if we do that we can really kind of unlock something really cool and special I think I mean I think AFL do it quite well with going out in the communities and they make relationships um, with elders and um, teachers and everything, and then they can kind of teach kids how to kick a football, give them a football, um, and then all of a sudden they're playing and they're looking, they're watching for games. They're going to be like, oh, if I get a chance to go to Perth, I'm going to go to this game. And, you know, and I think I, I think the more opportunities we have to give back to the community and um, – help them and expose them to just maybe here's a round ball or like this is a goalkeeper glove or I think you know it really kind of ignites a fire in them to to maybe pursue it and if they get the opportunity to leave um or a scholarship maybe they'll take that um and you know make something of themselves in the sporting sense so I'm just thinking all the young girls or even women like same age as us you know playing for the first time when they're watching the world cup and then the world cup ends it's like what you what do you want um the legacy to be for them when they're playing for the first time i mean i think it's just i just think australia doesn't really know what it the potential it can have um obviously going to to rio and in brazil you see little um games on the street or you see like in the middle of like a favela there's like a football field 
and it's sacred and it's like people are there just playing. Um, you hear about obviously the Brazilian teams of, you know, quite a number of them have grown up in favelas and then made it to world stadiums and winning gold medals and trophies and, um, you know, I want to kind of see, you know, places that are like, oh, kids are playing that in the street. You know, we used to always play outdoor cricket um, at home. You know, it would be nice to see like every backyard or front yard having a little football net or, you know, kids just like kicking the ball away because a car's coming and, okay, start again. And and kind of that, um, that it becomes more of a a joy thing rather than a hobby maybe or something that people have to pay a lot of money for, that they're just playing for the love of it. Yeah, like also means of developing community or more community connection and social connection. And I think Australia is such a multicultural place that it will help everybody to unite a little bit more. Sport brings people together. You see it at Olympics, so why can't football all of a sudden ignite people in one country to all join um, and play it? You know, you've played for 18 years. What have you started thinking about kind of what the future looks like, or is your head more still, you know, very present in what you're doing? Um, a bit of both. Obviously, it's, you know, World Cup's the, the most important thing in, on my head and what I'm doing at the moment. Um, but yeah, definitely, I think I've had to start planning and um, assessing future options as well. Um, I've always been a big, um, uh, I guess supportive advocacy and making sure that there's opportunity to grow the game, whether it's um, you know for multicultural reasons, women's rights, um, you know, just people enjoying it and, and trying to help people and create opportunities. For me, that's kind of where I find my passion lies, and obviously doing a lot of work with the PFA and. Um, helping out there, you know, I'm not really, I guess, afraid of a challenge. So for me, that's something that I think I'm more passionate about. I don't think I go down the coaching route, even though I think I might be okay, maybe, but um, I'd much rather help grow the game in um, opportunities rather than, um, you know, kind of coaching or anything like that. The World Cup's also happening at such a pivotal moment for, you know, gender equity and women everywhere. Um what does it mean to you to be a woman today? Oh, I think it's opportunistic. I think it's still a lot of hard work, but I think if you put in the hard work, there's always going to be a payoff. Um, so, yeah, I think it's, you know, nothing's ever free and it's always a battle, but I think, you know, right now women's opportunities are massive and I think the battle pays off if you're willing to put in the work. Thank you for listening. This podcast was produced by the Centre for Stories. It was developed in conjunction with and funded by the State Library of Western Australia. Our organisations believe in storytelling as a way to build more inclusive communities. Head to slwa.wa.gov.au to listen to the rest of this oral history collection. Or head to centreforstories.com to learn more about our storytelling services and mission. Special thanks to our production team, script editor and executive producer, Louisa Mitchell, that's me, producer and interviewer, Chris Morano, and audio engineer, Mason Velios. Thank you.